It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The GabFest is sponsored by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up your packages sign up for a no-risk trial and get 55 dollars in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code gabfest and by audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com gabfest And welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 4th, 2014, the live nude dancing at the Kitty Cat Lounge edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate. The gang is all here. John Dickerson is back from his dip in the Fountain of Youth, his annual annual dip there. Do you, are you feeling better? I feel in, enlivened. And, yeah. I don't even know where you were. You don't have to tell us. I was at Club Med. Oh, yes, right. You did I tell me. I was at Club Med in San Pepper Bay with some of my old dear friends. So it was, um, it was great. It was wonderful to be with them. My children, Emily Bazelon, for, for two days. <laughs> Emily Bazelon went sub-equatorial on us. My question for you, Emily, is uh, you're a slate senior editor, but that's not my question. Is when you go south of the equator, do you suddenly become a flaming conservative? Are you like do you is <laughs> do it you like spin that? The do wrong you spin way? the wrong way? <laughs> we actually stood. They mark where the equator is in Ecuador, so we were there, kind of marking it. So I could have had some moment of you know complete division where I turned into. Uh, uh, but were you conservative when you did, were there? No. no. Did you straddle sure? the um, equator the way uh, we only drove well, we, through it because the kids weren't there for that part. If they oh, had so been there, yeah, they would have been stop. like, oh, yeah. they love that. Yeah, yeah, they were the equator. Elsewhere. Awesome. You guys missed a lot. There was a lot that happened. We had I beg to differ. I felt oh, on the show things yeah. happened. In the world, only there weird was Ebola. Happened. There were tsunamis. Yeah. Maybe that happened mostly this week. Well, there was mostly Crimea. Crimea. Yeah, I uh, missed you all desperately though. On this week's show, we have a Supreme Court extravaganza. We have missed Emily so much that we're going to do just basically all Supreme Court all the time. First, the court chops away another campaign finance limit in the McCutcheon case, leaving us with scarcely any regulations on campaign contributions anymore. And finally, the court protected the rights of the rich to have their say in politics. Thank God. Then we will do a politics grab bag topic. We'll talk about Paul Ryan's budget. We'll talk about the Obamacare deadline. We'll talk about the one Republican in Congress who wanted to reform the tax code and how he is now being drummed out of office. And then we will talk about Arguendo, which is a new play that reenacts a famous 1991 Supreme Court case about new dancing. We're not going to really talk. We'll talk some about the play, but mostly about sort of the theater and the Supreme Court. And we'll have cocktail chatter, of course. Before we start, what happens on April 23rd? John Dickerson, do you know? April 23rd, we'll be in Austin, Texas, uh, having a live show. Is that right? Yes, With we the will. The Tribune, the Texas Tribune Tribcast is joining us, right? It, Texas Tribune Tribcast. We're going to be at Schultz, Garden, Schultz Beer Garden in Austin. It's Are we be, all going to be at the same on the stage at the same time? It's complicated. We're going to do we're going to do the first half of the show. Then we're going to do some stuff with. Uh, then the Tribune folks will do something. Then we'll do a little bit together too. It's going to be an amazing, 
amazing and then we're night. Have a big we'll do finale. We'll finale. U.S. politics, everybody... Texas combination thereof. The cocktail party, pre-show cocktail party, is already sold out, but there are tickets left for the regular show. It's really going to be a fun night. You can get tickets at slate.com slash Austin. That's www.slate.com slash Austin, April 23rd in Austin. In a 5-4 to four ruling on Wednesday, the Supreme Court unsurprisingly held that rich people had a right to give even more money to federal political candidates. The case, which is McCutcheon v. FEC, right? It's the V is against FEC, Emily, yeah. Yep. Challenged the aggregate campaign contribution limits passed by Congress. The law had allowed direct contributions to any single candidate of no more than $5,200 in any cycle. That remains. But there had been a max to all candidates that you could give about $50,000, slightly less than $50,000 to all candidates. There's other money. You can go to party committees and so forth. We'll just not talk about that. Roberts Court said, halt. This is a restriction on free speech for people who want to spend lots of money. Let's say you want to give $1,776 to many, many different political candidates, as McCutcheon of Alabama wanted to do. You ought to be allowed to do it. That is your free speech right. This is not corrupting. So Emily... What is the basis for John Roberts and his conservative colleagues on the court to find that this is uh, these aggregate limits are a First Amendment violation? Well, it's a great example of the genius of John Roberts at playing the long game. And the long game here starts even before he got on the court with Buckley versus Vallejo. So that's the foundational decision in the 1970s that equated money with speech for the purposes of spending. So the idea was because money is speech, you can't limit what candidates can spend. But Buckley said you can limit what people can contribute because of this countervailing problem of addressing corruption. And since then, the understanding of corruption has mostly been pretty recognizable and broad. The idea that we're worried about undue influence, worried about ingratiation, access, all the sort of smarmy, but, you know, relatively intangible things that can completely screw up the political system. So then Citizens United comes along in 2010. And we mostly know that decision as allowing corporations and unions to give to independent political groups. They still can't give directly to candidates or the parties, but then they can do all this outside spending. And that unleashes this floodgate of money. It also had some language in it that could be read and has now been read to redefine corruption. So we're no longer talking about all of the, you know, favors that might go on that don't rise to the level of quid pro quo defined essentially as bribery. That's really now the only kind of corruption that the court says Congress can regulate in the face of this hugely important First Amendment interest that rich people have to spend all their money. That's the pillar of... um, This decision, which then essentially says, okay, well, once we've defined corruption in this narrow way, Congress had no basis for these aggregate limits. And Roberts, who Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote that the majority, well, it's really a plurality, but that doesn't matter because Justice Thomas is such a solid fifth vote. He would have gone even further. So essentially, it's the majority opinion. And what Roberts says is... This whole problem that Congress is trying to address of preventing an influx of money into the system is not really legitimate because we don't care if rich people have so much more influence than everyone else. And secondly, Robert says, you know, the problem of circumvention of the base limits is not legitimate either. So what the court had said in Buckley in the 70s, because we're talking about a 
election law that was passed way back in 1971 in the Watergate era, the court had said, you know, if we don't keep this aggregate limit in place, people are going to figure out a way around the $5,200 limit. Now that rationale is gone. And that's a big fight that Justice Breyer gets into Roberts in Breyer's dissent. But for the majority, that's where we are. He said the aggregate limit is no longer because there are other measures to keep that from happening. Is Not his that argument. there are other measures, but really, that but argument. that Congress could enact. Other Congress measures. could enact measures that would allow would prevent people from transferring money or from doing chicanery. So, John, this appears to benefit a very small group of very rich people. I mean, is that right? Is it essentially just going to help a very small group of very rich people who are disproportionately Republican? Or is there larger? Well, I don't know. I don't. Health? I think you could. I, you're right on the first part. So that if you care about global warming and you want to support only candidates who uh, promote global warming, as and we have such a person out there right now, it's going to help the rich on both sides. So it's going to help the rich on both sides. It's going to help pollsters and strategists and all the other people who do things that require spending a lot of money in campaigns. They are going to now have lots more money to pay them to do what they do. I mean, there's always. Campaigns are limited Wait, by I, the- I need to stop you here. The both sides thing just isn't the case. I mean, it's true. There are very rich Democrats who make contributions. Disproportionately, these are people who are giving to Republicans. So the base of the – this is why Republicans were wildly in support of this decision and Democrats are wildly opposed is that there's a huge disparity among these very rich. That so it depends it, on the kind of money you're giving. So that if you're giving money – if you're giving unregulated money or essentially unregulated money to a super PAC, that's different than – than the money that we're talking about here. Well, the question is, is it, right? I mean, you could Well, argue, one, you're disclosed and one, you're not. Yes, it's different. It is. There's disclosure and accountability. And, if, in the, and so there is an argument that this is better. If you right, think of exactly. the pie as like a fixed amount, which I don't think is true. But if you do, if you think, right. okay, the Sheldon Adelsons of the world have already anteed up. We're not going to add to their number. You can make an argument. And my friend Nate personally made this argument today, I think in the Times, saying, well, better to give more of the money to the insiders, Correct. to the party people, the candidates. They're less crazy, radical, unaccountable than these outside but spending. That is a just, that's just a, a completely preposterous perspective on this, because all the evidence that we have seen suggests that Anytime you allow more money into politics, more money will go into politics, basically no. because politics is underpriced. No, it's not preposterous. It's it, so it's wrong. No, it's not. Yes, so, it is wrong. So it's, here's the let different me, wait, kinds. Can of, I finish my thought? Okay, I interrupted your thought. Yeah, I was going to say. I interrupted you. The value you get from political investment, if you're making a contribution, is a very good value. You get a lot of return, especially if you're rich. You can influence things which have an enormous payback for you in terms of you know, help for your industry, protection from regulation, shifting regulations. And that's why every time we've given the chance for more money to flow into politics, more money flows into politics, whether it flows in directly through a front door of a contribution to a political candidate or it flows in through side doors, which are these super PACs or, or other organizations that people can spend on. And I just don't think it is – reasonable to say that now that people can give more money to parties, therefore they will give less money to these shadowy organizations. The money to the shadowy organizations, I will make you a bet on the show, John, the money to the shadowy organizations remains just where it is or goes up. Okay. So here's the problem with this debate is that it's important to understand the different kinds of money and the different ways in which it acts. When we last had a conversation about this, you made me a similar bet and you said, everybody's going to write in with lots of examples of quid pro quo. One of the reasons it was 
when we talked about this before. Oh, you have such a dangerous memory. I totally forgot that whole. One of the reasons we, that this was we had this debate before is that is that I had argued that if you're trying to convince John Roberts that the bad parts of money are all about quid pro quo, you're going to have a hard time doing it because there aren't a lot of examples of quid pro quo. And if that's the the case you need to slay him, he's going to decide the way he ultimately came down and decided. So what happens is... In other words, you were right. Yeah, I don't remember this discussion at all. Did I? We said there would be lots of cases of quid pro quo. I don't think I don't actually believe that, so I find it hard to believe that I I said that. No, and what happened was there's all this like massive indignation and money is so you need to like pull apart the ways in which the money is incredibly corrupting in the system. But just like indignation, money is bad in all of its forms. I think is imprecise, and and it what happens is then you just get people being like emotional. What Emily was saying is really interesting, which is that there is a way in which if the political parties have more money, then their interest, John Boehner's interest now, if he gets to control a huge pot of money, is he can use that money as a lever of power to get legislation passed. Now, he may not have great things in mind when he wants to pass that legislation, but it is better if you're measuring two bad things, if you decide that money in politics is bad which you may decide. It's important, I think, to distinguish between the two kinds of badness. So it's bad that John Boehner, it's maybe bad that John Boehner or Harry Reid has more power to get his way because he now has more money. So he can tell a member, do what I want, or you're not going to get money to go to your campaign. That is perhaps one kind of badness. A worse kind of badness, I would argue, is when a chemical company who has very specific narrow interests uses their money to support their very specific narrow interests. And we don't even know that's happening correct. because there's no disclosure. But correct. And so focusing on the on the lack of disclosure in the one case is conflating that with the other, I think just mi- mixes and messes things up. This plea for specificity and distinction is not to suggest that the one kind is great. It's just to make a distinction between the kind of of influence that's now being protected, which is distinct from the other kind of influence, because I think otherwise you don't like know how to attack these ideas. Arguably, the John Boehner having more influence over his members or or Harry Reid having more influence over their members is more in the category of kind of the wielding of power that's a part of politics as we understand it, as opposed to the super corrupting influence that we have when corporations uh, pursue their. I, not, I don't. I don't disagree with you at all. It's obviously the case that more public, transparent donations to the parties, and that where where the parties have more money to dole out to their candidates, will give the parties relatively more power. I don't disagree with that. What I disagree with is the claim that this is a zero. Finite some sum. finite right. sum of money. Uh, the, there's still a huge amount of money that wasn't vastly more claim. is going into that wasn't the, well, the shadowy world, and it continue. Right. But that wasn't Emily's claim. Continue to go into the shadowy world. Right. It will continue but to go in the shadowy that, world. That, nobody. I don't think anybody and, was making that claim, and Emily certainly wasn't. The argument that was, claim is out there. I mean, right now there are only 540 people or so who give up to the max, and um, the question is, are there lots of other people who are eager to join them and then go beyond? Yeah. You know, do lots of people want to be Sheldon Adelson? on the right and Tom Steyer on the left and will this additional route for those people where you can have direct influence bring in a lot more money or is this like a little tiny click no, in American society that's I mean we only have 150,000 donors in the entire country we are already talking about 0.1% so then this additional question of how big the millionaire pot grows we don't know the answer to that no we don't but I think we can be pretty safe in past practices in concluding a couple of things one 
lots more people are going to give as much as they can. The people who are going to get richest fastest are going to be the pollsters and strategists and those people because campaigns start earlier and earlier in part because you want to grab that first mover's advantage. And that means you need to raise more money to do all of the things you do, which is not just running ads on TV, but also hire pollsters and strategists and all of that. It's why spending on to win a congressional race or Senate race has doubled in the last roughly 10 years. So we can be pretty sure that, as John McCain says, money in politics is like water through cracks. It finds its, its way. Right. It's coming. But I, one thing I just want to say that's just really important about to this question of quid pro quo is that the way money works in the and I'm struck by this it comes up more and more in reporting is I was talking to somebody the other day about the Republican Party and how it was trying to reposition itself. And this person said, you know, I thought we should have had a big debate over Dodd-Frank as a way to kind of define the party as not in the pockets of the banks. And this person said, but in talking to members of Congress, they kept bringing up the amount of money they were getting from the banks. That anecdote has been in my ears for years and years and years. Now, that's not too dissimilar from the person who says, I can't vote for tax increases because Grover Norquist is going to kill me. It's not Grover's money that kills them. It's his ability to funnel the power of the people who support his point of view. That's a separate argument. We can but have that debate. But it's anti-majoritarian. It's anti-majoritarian. And somebody, by virtue of the amount of money that they can donate and the money they can get into campaigns, has an incredible influence over the way these – in the real world, in the way these members talk on both the left and the right, they are stopped dead in their tracks by the money they get. It is an obsession. And the fear that it will go away in these campaigns that are increasingly expensive, the fear that that money will go away if they do the wrong thing on both the left and the right is absolutely paralyzing. And so, it's constant. So why do you think that the outside group corruption is worse? I mean, the way I was thinking about this before you started talking was that, OK, the outside groups can be more extreme and radical. And if you believe that the Republican Party is not being held hostage by them already, you think like, well, John Boehner better than Ted Cruz. And as long as the state political committee hasn't been taken over by the Tea Party, you'd rather have the insiders in control because they are relatively reasonable. Right. I mean, it seems to me like we're talking about two different flavors of corruption, and uh, yes. they're both awful. My goal in life is to f accept that we're talking about different flavors of okay. corruption. I think you could order them all kinds of different ways. I think you could make arguments for all of them. I'm just happy to recognize that there's that a very different. different kind of corruption because I think one of the things that happens in the debate is when it doesn't get identified in the way it works, there is a loophole for people to say, well, there's no quid pro quo, so there's no, there's no issue here. But there is an issue, and there's an issue of – whether there is, by virtue of the amount of money you donate, you just drown out the voices of everybody else. Right. And as a practical matter, in the way these campaigns work, money being the mother's milk of politics is the truest thing about politics, period. Now, and yet Chief Justice John Roberts but, won't recognize but, that on every level. Emily, can I ask you about a question about just that point, which is that you, one point that's been made about this Supreme Court is that it now has no members who've really ever had a job except being a lawyer, essentially. But certainly no one who's ever been elected politically. Do you think that the Supreme Court makes these decisions about money and politics because they truly are ignorant and don't understand how money sways and influences politics, how corruption works? Or is this is it really an ideological decision and, and Roberts is looking for a vest to put on to cover himself? You know, I'm not in John Roberts's heart, but I do think that the idea that the First Amendment 
must be interpreted only in this way where the rights of rich people to give as much money as they want is the only value we have. It's so self-serving for the Republican Party and for conservatives. It's a little hard for me to give him as much credence as I would like to for kind of true sincerity. And that is especially true because as I was reading the opinions, there's a fight over whether how much circumvention will there really be of the $5,200 limits, how much bundling. And Roberts really goes on at length trying to dismiss the notion that this is a real concern. And then you read Justice Breyer's response, and it's devastating. He lays out these three paths, legal, completely plausible, through which you could channel a couple of million dollars to one person through a kind of made-up like victory committee thing, which I'm sure now will be sprouting all over the place. And Reading those just as, you know, pieces of rhetoric grounded in law and facts and case history, you think one of these is convincing and one of these has five votes and they are not the same. You know what is a great Colbert stunt you you need to suggest to him is to create a victory, is just to do this. Do the show the circumvention. Yeah. So can I just throw two ideas in here, which I'm not smart enough to figure out the end point of, but you have two arguments that push back against some of what we've been saying. One is that a lot of the sclerosis that you see in both parties is paralysis, not because of the moneyed interest, but because on the right, you're worried about a Tea Party challenge. That's not because the Tea Party has a lot of money. The biggest force in Republican politics, arguably, in the last five years has been basically a grassroots movement, which has been certainly spurred and promoted and given lots and lots of air cover by very wealthy individuals. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But still, at base, they get the asses in the seats. I mean, there are human beings, grassroots people that's not about money. And so maybe it's just two things can exist. Maybe you can have lots and lots of money in politics and you can have a grassroots movement. But it would bring tension into the idea that one is blotting out the other. The other is uh, Michael Bloomberg has a lot of money. He put a lot of money into trying for a little while to promote gun control legislation. It's failed miserably. It's not going to affect any race in 2014. So there's a case in which the ideas and the beliefs that people have are impervious to the power of money. And so if you look at that example, couldn't you say, yeah, well, he tried, used all his money, didn't work at all. So therefore, there's not a great worry But there are lots of counterexamples, John, of industries which are spending their money on regulations. Guns is a hard issue because people are actually genuinely passionate about it. And they know about it and understand it. Energy, they don't care. Like, you know, the subsidies for this driller or for that method or this thing. That's where or that's even where Dodd the money Frank is something that is, you know, not like on the tips of everyone's tongue. Also, just one other thing that about how lobbying works and influence works that was explained to me the, like the day I came back to Washington to report on this stuff is that what this lobbyist said to me is that everybody expects the quid pro quo. But what happens is that basically when you're in Congress, maybe I've done this on the show before, when you're in Congress and you're a member, you need information. And the fastest place you can go for information is the guy you talk to at a fundraiser who knows, yeah, he knows some stuff about fracking. And so he puts you in touch with his guy. And boy, that guy knows a lot about fracking. I need somebody on my, my staff who, who knows about fracking. Guess and what? By right. way, yeah, and by the way, guess the who knows? And I'll be right. repaying right. this right. favor. So even if the access is not, I come into your room and say, I want this line written into this law, it's the circle of people with right. whom you hang. And Absolutely. therefore, your connections, yes. just like a neighborhood you might live yes. in, it's just the neighborhood you live in is is got specific interests in the things over which you right. rule. So think about just, I have to, this is such a radical, crazy idea that John Roberts would say that none of that matters and that 
Congress can't do anything about it, right? This isn't, you know, Congress decided it mattered and the court has decided for Congress, even though these are the justices who don't run for election, that Congress can't recognize the very real forms of corruption because the First Amendment says no. Well, because he's saying those aren't forms of corruption. That's a question of equality. Equality of voice is not a kind of corruption, right? Doesn't he say it has to be just narrowly in corruption and don't make a case based on equality of access because that's not... Right. But you could argue, why is it the court's business to define corruption in this way at all and to tell co- – I mean, the court has this sort of sword of the First Amendment, but well, it's right. really questionable. Of, yeah. And Breyer tries to address this in his dissent by saying there is also a countervailing First Amendment interest in the collective speech of all the people who can't afford to give millions of dollars and goes back to the framers and their concern about all those smaller voices and the way in which they structured the democracy so that those people will be heard. Well – I, for one, am glad that the rich are getting their chance to have their full say. Can we just, on that final point, there have been some stories about how the 1% feels like they're under assault. This is just another way in which they're doing just fine. They're going to be on both the left and the right. All kinds of new phone calls are going to be coming But you're to so the 1%. insensitive, John. People are going to be shaking them down. They're going to be, I know. You know they are going to be asked risk. for money. It is, that is, you're it's so just, right. I mean, I'm you're really so right. worried about them. Oh, good point. That's right. The assault is coming. I'm not saying they're not under pressure. They're under pressure from campaign finance directors at all the campaigns. The GapFest this week is sponsored by Stamps.com. When you think about the best time to go to the post office, you're probably guessing it's before work. After work, maybe during lunch, but that is wrong. That's when the post office is most crowded. Everyone's going then because the truth is there is no convenient time to go to the post office, which is why you need Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can access all the services of the post office right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. If you want to, for example, send checks to every single candidate for federal office, now you can. A $2,600 check this week. You can just hand those letters to your mail carrier. And unlike the post office, stamps.com is open 24-7. So if you need to send those checks at midnight tonight, no problem. No lines. You can get your mailing and shipping done whenever it's convenient for you. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for the special offer. You'll get a no-risk trial and up to $55 in free postage plus a digital scale. That's a $110 bonus offer. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Washington, so usually concerned with trivia, actually turned itself to serious policy in recent days. This week, Paul Ryan, the House Budget Committee chairman, released an ambitious budget plan. Not quite a bill, nothing, but it's a scheme, a scheme. He's going to zero out the deficit in 10 years with the time-honored Republican ideas of cutting taxes on the wealthy, raising defense spending, slashing government programs for the poor, and magic. (laughs) Meanwhile, House Ways and Means Chairman Dave Camp announced his retirement. This happened after his ambitious and quite honest tax reform plan had been proposed and then had been hung, drawn, quartered, incinerated in napalm, its ashes scattered in the Bermuda Triangle, by fellow Republicans and lobbyists, mostly lobbyists for the financial industry, other special interest groups. And all this is against a backdrop of the Obamacare March 31st deadline and the administration announcing that 7 million, more than 7 million people had signed up for Obamacare and others uh, were getting benefits through expanded Medicaid, which they touted, celebrated, saw as a great 
triumph over the the negativism that has pervaded the rollout of Obamacare. John, I want to start with the the camp proposal, which was a really serious tax reform proposal. He proposed to cut income tax rates generally. Um, the top tax rate he was only taking down to thirty five percent, but he was taking rates for other people down to ten or twenty five percent. He was going to cut the corporate tax rate quite a lot, eliminate a lot of deductions, including very popular deductions, eliminate the alternative uh, AMT, alternative minimum tax. He was going to raise taxes on big banks and hedge funds to help pay for this. It got tremendous praise from honesty from people on the left who thought like this is a plan that at least grapples with the reality of this. And it was just gutted. Well, it was gutted. It was gutted in that it ain't, it ain't ever going to show. It's, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Yeah. It's like the, it was jumped on and choked, baby and cradle, suffocated. What happened? Well, a series of things happened. The big one is that the people rushing to stop Dave Camp are not the little old lady in Des Moines. I mean, they are high-profile lobbyists who have connections to all the members of Congress and also have connections into the fundraising apparatus of basically the House Republicans because they're the ones who control the House and they're the ones who the House Speaker is the one who allows Dave Camp to bring up his tax reform or not. That's one part of it. The other part of it is it's an election year and why would House Republicans want to have a big, ugly, self-defeating fight about tax policy in which they piss off a lot of their donors and a lot of their constituents same reason basically they're not having a discussion about immigration reform in this election year. Another reason is that there is a bipartisan consensus to do something about tax reform, but there is no bipartisanship. And so there is no coalition that can be built. There's no benefit to building a coalition with Democrats for the House Republicans or for Democrats to build a coalition with Republicans either politically and also they just don't get close at all on the policy. You know, in 1986, when they did tax reform, there were some people working across the aisle, even though in this case you had Dave Camp working with Max Baucus in the finance committee in the Senate, and they worked on it for years in just the way you would want members of Congress to work. I mean, they they went through all the hard kind of complex issues. They went all around the country talking to people at all small businesses, big corporations, self-employed people, you know, did their homework for years and years and years. And there's just, it has no constituency because so many people dislike it. And nobody wants to be brave enough to piss off those individual people who dislike it. It seems like there were two groups, Emily, that were really annoyed. One group is sort of the general House conservatives who want to cut income tax rates. And they really want to cut the top income tax rate down to which is now 39%, I think. Down to 25%. Down to 25%. But Camp, being honest, pointed out that if you cut that rate down to 25%, you lose so much income that you just basically can't fund the government. You can't make this revenue neutral at that level. So he kept a top rate at 35%, which is still too high for a lot of the incredibly rich people who fund the Republican Party at the campaign level. The second group that was infuriated was that Camp also said, you, in order to make this revenue neutral, in order to keep government funded, we need to raise revenue somewhere. And one way we're going to do that is by taxing too big to fail banks in particular and hedge fund income. And those two sources of income are enormous for both parties. Both parties get a huge amount from hedge fund people and from the big banks. Does this mean that there is simply no way to do tax reform? Yes. I mean, unless you marry it, you know, you get back to the unrealistic idea of marrying it to entitlement reform and you change the amount of money that needs to come in. And the only other option is Paul Ryan's budget, which cuts the top income bracket down to 25 percent and then pretends with this made up voodoo math that we're just going to 
expand the economy so much that it will magically make up for the loss of revenue. Yeah. The one other thing I would include in why this dies or is dying is that the pressure for deficit reduction has kind of gone away as a um, issue for the right and even and, and for the president as well. So that for a long period of time, everybody would bury their magical solutions in tax reform. So they would say, like, the grand bargain will work this way. Like, Democrats will do some stuff on entitlements and Republicans will do something on taxes that they'll kind of hide inside tax reform, that they will allow tax revenue to go up, but they will do do it kind of under the guise of it reforming the tax code and people won't be as angry because in that reform, that magical reform, you might even see rates go down. It's not just rates and where they are at, marginal rates and where they are at is not just about the rich. It's about the philosophical view among conservatives that if you have low marginal rates, it leads to growth and freedom and economic activity. They were always during the deficit talks when those were happening, such as they were, Tax reform was always the kind of magical place the tough stuff would happen. Now that nobody's trying to figure out how to fix the deficit at the moment in a public way, they no longer have to go even care about tax reform. But I should say that the people who really want tax reform are the business lobbies because the tax code is a mess. Corporate taxes are crazy and and cause all kinds of stupid behavior that's inefficient. So there is there is a whole other group of lobbyists. The problem is that you can want tax reform, but then when you get down to the specifics – Everybody grabs their thing they want, and nobody has the political muscle to break everybody out of their individual self-interest. The Ryan budget is the other thing, the big policy news this week. And that that was a budget to, again, to zero out the deficit. And he, as Emily said, he wants to do it by cutting marginal tax rates down and simplifying the tax code. But really, it's huge, huge cuts to programs that aid the poor and students, uh, big, big cuts to education, the usual, I mean, taking out funding for the arts and stuff like that, but that's easy. But it's really gigantic cuts to Medicaid, rolling back Obamacare, I think big food stamp cuts. Ryan had talked such a big game about poverty and about his concern for the poor. Why does he then turn around and produce such a fantastical, at once fantastical because it is unrealistic, but also draconian budget? Okay, well, to give him credit, because his ideas of helping the poor are wedded to this deep crazy belief that by doing these things, you get more economic growth and more jobs, and eventually the poor will somehow benefit from that. And to be cynical, because he wants to thrive in a party in which there is zero payoff for actually providing poor people with benefits that would improve their daily lives in the here and now. There's so anti-benefit. His, his philosophical view is that these programs create dependency and it's the old cliche about the safety nets turned into a hammock. The way he sees the world, promoting these programs is actually hurting the least among us. And so you want to get rid of those programs and replace them with other kinds of ideas, either at the state level or through charities. Now, there's a lot of pushback from those involved in charities who say, we're doing all we can. There's no way we could take a larger load here. But his argument is that the values at the center of those welfare programs don't actually get at the pathologies they're trying to that, that we're trying I mean, to fix. The best thing you can say for Ryan's view of this and the conservative view is that poverty is an incredibly difficult problem to address. And that the war on poverty, while I mean I think it's been tremendously important and our poverty rate will be much harder without it, it's not like it's obviously so wonderful for everyone, right? I mean, if it was easy, we would all agree. And so there is this way in which there are these underlying huge social problems that are very, very frustrating 
frustrating and difficult and entangled. They usually have to do with drugs and mental health. And so that fuels the frustration conservatives have with this. Right. On the other hand, it's so odd for to hear conservatives say what really, you know, you really need to get more money in the hands of rich people so that they can yes, spend it and, and more money in the hands this. of defense contractors. But the people you don't want to put more money in the hands in because it's that's just disincentivizes them is the poor people who actually don't have money. And it's such it's a, a stale fight. I mean, this is a Reagan era dispute that we continue to have over and over again, even though the evidence is that when you give the money to the rich people and the defense contractors, that is who it helps to give the money to. He doesn't need to propose this budget. Right. Is this something that's to provide cover for conservatives for the election or is there a, another reason for it? Or is he running for president in 2016? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it – Or just playing he believes, intellectual you know, role. He believes these things. For a long time, John Kasich would produce budgets that were never going to pass. You know, that's what they do. They're the, they don't want to just fake it. And so I think in, in a way, he's sticking to what he believes. Now, the problem is – it's easy to do it in the context now because it's not going to come up. It's not going to really be fought through. When they tried, uh, when they did try to follow previous Ryan budgets, there was basically a revolt from the appropriators. And you had this moment last year when, with the Transportation, Housing, Urban Development Appropriations Bill, where basically they couldn't get enough Republican votes for the bill because in order to keep the caps that Ryan had set, Republicans just revolted. They were too low. This is unrealistic, but we're in an unrealistic time because this budget's never going to go anywhere. So that it, it's a kind of a campaign document for people who have this philosophical view. The question, <clears throat> pardon me, is whether Democrats, desperate to find some way to define Republicans, will be able to use this budget to define those Republicans in the House who are in tough races, there aren't that many of them, as being uncaring and unfeeling, and whether people will listen. So the GabFest is also sponsored this week by our friends at Audible.com. Audible is, of course, the leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with more than 150,000 audiobook titles. There are amazing books of all sorts, bestsellers, of course, a lot of classics. And we've been asking you for recommendations, and uh, you guys have been giving us great recommendations for books you're listening to on Audible. And we got a fantastic one this week. Daniel Murphy recommends a book we may have already, we've certainly recommended on the show before. I don't remember if we've done it for Audible before, which is The Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> it's unabridged. It's about 30 hours, he says. It's the only presidential memoir actually worth reading or listening to. I so concur with this recommendation. The only thing that could possibly make this recommendation better would be if Ulysses Grant himself had been recorded <laughs> reading it. That would have been great. It is one of the great books in America. It's a beautifully written book. It's fascinating. I forget. Have you guys read it? I can't remember. No, I no really but need I, to, John, you would you would so go crazy. I know. I, I I've always been envious of your uh, having read about it. You have talked about it on the yeah, show. Yeah, I've definitely and, talked about um, it. You should go listen to it. So, with our special offer, you can get a free book, such as the the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, when you sign up for Audible today and use our special offer code, which is audiblepodcast.com slash gabfest. So that URL, audiblepodcast.com slash gabfest. Free audiobook. And you can also get a subscription to the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest for free, too. Arguendo is a play that has just opened here in Washington, D.C. after a very successful run in New York. It's going to travel elsewhere in the country. It is essentially a performance of a Supreme Court argument, a 1991 case about whether Indiana had the right to ban all nude erotic dancing at the Kit Kat Lounge, the Kitty Cat Lounge, excuse me. The case is a doozy. The nine justices ended up producing, what, five different opinions. Ultimately, they upheld the right to ban 
new dancing, but it was fascinating discussion about the First Amendment, about nudity laws, about the distinctions between erotic dancing and perhaps nudity. It appeared in a more artistic way. Emily consulted on the show. Emily and I saw it last night. John was supposed to see it, but was unable to because of some intervention in his life. But it's a really interesting show. Not, Of course, most of you are not going to get a chance to see it. I would urge you. Though it is traveling around the country. It is traveling around the country. I would urge you to go see it if you do get the chance. But, but I wanted to use this to discuss the Supreme Court as theater or sort of what we can learn about the Supreme Court from seeing an argument act out like this. So, Emily, you, of course, have been to the Supreme Court and seen argument many times, and now you've seen it done theatrically in this play. Is this a mirror to the Supreme Court? Is this actually what the Supreme Court is like? It's incredibly closer to a mirror than you would ever think could work as theater. And when I first started talking to John Collins, the director of Elevator Repair Service, the theater group that's doing the play, and when I saw the original, the early version workshopped, I thought, oh my God, this just can't succeed as theater. It's so boring. And there's all this discussion of abstruse case law. What did the Indiana Supreme Court say about what the First Amendment has to do with Indiana's nudity law? It goes on and on. There's like this really dense discussion about what tests they should be using. But now it has all of that in it because the elevator repair service MO is to be very literal. These are the people that put on Gats, the um, seven-hour production of The Great Gatsby. They read. But there is all of this um, movement and humor and dancing that's been injected into the show in a way that really brings some of the words to life or buries the ones that are just too boring to really be able to stand. So I think it is, in a lot of ways, it's sort of a more fun um, example of what it's like to listen to argument. When you actually go to the Supreme Court, so one thing this play conveys is the idea that the justices are really mentally grappling with this, that they are, I wouldn't say it's like flummoxment, but it's like some sense about, I mean, what I think we have on this show, which is like you're actually thinking about this issue. Is it when you go to the Supreme Court, do you actually get the sense that the judges are thinking about these issues? Or is it pure stagecraft? They know where they are and they are making rhetorical points. They are really thinking it through aloud. And they do it in a variety of ways. They often come up with really difficult hypotheticals, which the lawyers then have to figure out on the spot how to answer in a way that will help their case rather than hurt their cases. The justices also are jostling with each other. They're kind of using the lawyers to talk to each other and test out their ideas. It's not to say that they go into every argument completely open open-minded about the result. And in fact, argument rarely really matters in the outcome of a case. But the intellectual debating that's going on and the testing is super important. And as this case is an excellent illustration of, even if they know what they think the outcome should be, one of the best things about the Supreme Court and courts appeals courts is they have to write down a reason. And what you see with these multiple opinions is they couldn't agree on why um, the First Amendment didn't protect new dancing. It actually turns out to be a hard question to answer. So, John, one thing, you, you haven't seen the play, but what's striking about this to me as a consumer of politics is this is the rare occasion where you actually see debate, intellectual debate, where really people are talking directly at each other and having to fight with each other over something directly. We never see that in Congress. Congressional debate is sham 99.9% of the time. There isn't actual back and forth. Occasional moments there is. Even in political campaigns, there are rarely moments where you are engaged head-to-head with somebody on a substantive manner. What's a way to inject more of that back into politics? Well, that's my favorite, you know, 
topic in life is trying to find a way to inject it. I mean, one thing I've argued is to basically stop letting candidates dodge hypothetical questions. I think one of the reasons hypothetical questions interest me is that it gets you a sense of watching them think on their feet, which is part of what the job is. And getting a sense of, if it's a hypothetical situation, getting a sense of how they order the world, how they, what questions would they ask, which is a close approximation of what they would do in office. Now, that's a question of testing for temperament of a candidate in the job they will do. It's not necessarily a way of getting at their views on policy matters. Although I suppose you could create a hypothetical in which you would get some of that. You'd have to do some inferring. We've been trying to do this for years with candidates to get them to talk. And, and the Ryan budget is an interesting example. I mean, there is a there's an actually wide-ranging conversation you could have for which Paul Ryan should be cheered because he's putting forth something that is so different that it requires a big conversation about the existing programs, whether the war on poverty failed or succeeded, how best to help people, whether you really want to help people, whether tax rates. I mean, it does lead to a could lead <laughs> to a robust conversation. And you have standing to ask the questions about those things because somebody's put forward a big policy document like that. Usually what happens in campaigns is it's hard to gain the standing to ask a question because candidates, I mean, you have standing, of course, you're a member of the press, but candidates often dodge it by saying, well, that's unrealistic or that's hypothetical. But if you have Paul Ryan's budget before you, you can say, well, wait, here's a specific document put forward by the budget chairman of the House in the majority. Like these aren't abstract issues. These are real specifics. And where do you line up on all of them? But and then if you lie about what the real budget implications are going to be of your tax cuts, you and then you create a dead end yeah. in which everyone has to toe this party line and people aren't telling the truth. And I think one thing about the justices is they can say whatever they want. I mean, this is so up. They're not up for election. There is no line they have to toe. Not to say they don't play to the audience sometimes, but they are usually willing to be themselves, right? Because they are. if they're playing to the audience, it's sort of in the way of preaching to the choir where they're going after their constituency or they're, you know, they're asking questions. It's I don't think they watch what they say on the bench the way politicians right. but, so, do. So, Emily, yeah. so does that mean that you think I came out of that thinking, gosh, they really need to televise these arguments. This yes. is it's so much intellectual swordsmanship. It's so stimulating. But do you think, in fact, the very independence and free thought would be ruined if they were televised. So obviously no. the justices say this to themselves. Their reasons for not televising arguments are completely self-serving. It's about wanting to maintain the Olympian status of the court. I guess you could say that has some kind of institutional value. But honestly, truly, I think they don't want to be recognized when they go to the grocery store. And that that plus tradition and the fact that they get to make the decision. If they were not making the decision, there's no way these arguments wouldn't be televised. And it would not be cheapening, first of all, no one would watch, truly. There would be some sound bites, yes, but we already get audio of that, and we certainly get it through opinions and through the news. Some of them court that in their speeches as well. And it's just, you know, of course we would be richer for being able to watch. I was in the I... grocery store the other day, and um, and I saw the energy secretary, Ernie Moniz, who has this amazing haircut. That's how I ID'd him. I was like, oh, my God, that's the energy secretary. So I was telling my kids, not quietly enough, like, Did you, you guys have to see the energy secretary. It's an amazing haircut. And I turn around, and he's right there. <laughs> <laughs> and were you embarrassed? I was like, hey, Mr. Secretary. <laughs> so, but here's my, I, on cameras in the courtroom, the problem is there has not been an institution where 
cameras in the courtroom has improved the l- level of discourse, at least in Washington politics. I mean, it's ruined Senate confirmations more than they already. I mean, they're all but th- that's things. A different that, animal. But those is people it though? are politicians. No, yes. I know, but, but and that's the moment where the judge in the hot seat does have to watch. But what maybe he or John's she is right. Saying. But it's Every like the back, more we need more back rooms. I don't I feel, think it would change. No, it. I don't know that we need more back rooms. I just think that the level now, it's not like they're cloaked, as we've said. You can read what they've said and you can hear what they've said. I guess I don't know what the benefit is, and I worry about the risk, which is that basically televisions have... have How about just same-day audio? There was no, a moment fine. where there were a few same-day audio arguments. Now we're back to none. Even, yeah, well, honestly, that... same-day transcript would make me really happy. Now the transcripts are taking forever. Well, that's stupid. Can, I mean, I can't... I can't can, we, can we close with one substantive question, which, Emily, you failed to answer for me, so I'm going to ask I you know, again. I know. This is going to so, be bad. So... I'm pretty much a First Amendment absolutist, I realized, but my First Amendment absolutism has taken me first full circle, which is I came away from hearing about nude dancing thinking, yeah, if Indiana wants to ban public nudity, then nude dancing can be banned because nude dancing is not speech. speech. Nude dancing is, it is, as we can agree, it's expressive behavior in the way burning a flag is expressive behavior. It is not speech in the same way that money is not speech. So what I do not understand is how we've gotten to a situation where freedom of speech has come to encompass things which are manifestly not speech. Speech to me implies words, it implies argument, it implies language. Okay, so writing counts even though it's not verbal speech? You would go that far? I think writing counts in speech. Yes. The, the, yes. That's good, freedom of the press. There's a freedom struggle. of the press, right? Yes. Freedom of the press is insured in the same amendment. Yes, but you could yeah, interpret that more narrow, yeah, but, narrowly. But, no, but yes. press imp- strongly implies writing. writing. But you don't want to go toward any kind of expressive performance that – so art, for example, visual art, well, photography, again, but dance. Pr- the pr- I, now that I think about the music. press, I think something – again, freedom of the press, like something which is – Art is not the press. Well, like an image, like a a cartoonish image. A cartoonish image. What about a high art photograph? I mean, I think you're – it's an interesting, very literal – I don't know where dance and money become speech. I think what's so hard about this is the line drawing. The classic problem that judges grapple with is conduct versus speech. And you're basically saying that dancing, I think, is conduct and the fact that it is sometimes or maybe always intended to convey some kind of expressive message doesn't matter. And so dancing should have no First Amendment protection. I think if we were talking about Swan Lake, which so clearly is a story as opposed to, you know, new dancing at the Kitty Cat Lounge, do you not want to include Swan Lake or opera? I guess opera song, so you would include the opera. It's very hard to get the $20 bills in the Swan Lake costume. When <laughs> well, but dancing. see, this is the thing is that feathers get in the way. Right, exactly. In the end, usually these discussions start coming down to high art versus low art, and we can see why, you know, <laughs> new dancers in the ballet would be an interesting interpretation that we would all glean some cultural insight from, but we think the women who are getting paid at the Kitty Cat Lounge don't deserve to dance nude. And the commercialization of it, the crassness of it, dissuades us. But to me, the idea that you would have no dancing in there just seem I don't know it seems like a very well just because you can have a law to stop dancing doesn't mean you will it's it's Presumably wouldn't hold up. I'm just saying I don't know why the you First Amendment You don't want the First Amendment to be invoked. Right. Dancing. But then there is no other constitutional clear place for this challenge to go. I mean, Well, I don't know that there's a constitutional right, right to, dance. to dance. Right. Oh, con- brother, there is. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I saw that movie Footloose. Anyway, Arguendo is the play. It's at the Woolly Mammoth Theater here in Washington through the end of April, and it'll be in New Haven in June. 
Let's turn to cocktail chatter. When you when you're having your cocktail at the Kitty Cat Lounge, John, what are you going to be chattering to one of the new dancers <laughs> to about? Bubble, to Trixie Bubblebottom. Um, so Dan Diamond is a is a fan of the show, and he writes brilliantly about healthcare policy uh, for the advisory board. But I came across something that he did uh, a year ago as a frequent flyer that I liked, which was a um, how to avoid the flu when you fly. It's based on the University of Arizona, uh, Chuck Gerba's work, basically looking at how disease spreads in planes. And the first thing is you don't have to worry so much about air circulation, which is kind of what you feel when you get on a plane, which is you're basically screwed because you're in this soup and no matter where you sit. A couple of things which maybe seem a little obvious, but there is a kind of hot zone that they identify they, um, that – the Wall Street Journal found that coach passengers had an almost 8% greater risk of contracting H1N1 if they sat within two seats of infected passengers. Oh, and my God, John, this is the most you chatter in so, the entire so, world. It's going to make you not touch anyone Well, it gets again. worse. It gets worse because, well, first, and so the suggestion of the piece is basically if somebody looks violently ill, like move away from them, except on planes, you can't move anywhere because there are no free seats. So you'll just not be going at all. Well, no. And also now, like everybody, you're so sat so closely together that basically you're two seats away from anybody because you're all on top of each other. But no, the other things that you could do, although I can't can't imagine myself actually doing this is that basically they found uh, noroviruses and all these other horrible influenza viruses on the, the tray. And so they suggest cleaning it with like an alcohol oh swab. Oh my God, you're going to be carrying it. around your wipes <laughs> everywhere. This is going to be very I know somebody bad. used to, there was a campaign reporter who used to do that, who used to like, um, you it's know. It's called obsessive compulsive and, disorder. And I know, but like, I mean, but on the other hand, it's. Paranoids are paranoid. No, no, but like there's nothing worse, as Emily knows, since she had to fly from Iowa to New Hampshire with me <laughs> than being sick flying all the time and being sick all the time planes like double the sickness and the other point of, is to use a hand sanitizer when you go into the bathroom because basically the bathrooms are these like fetid swamps <laughs> anyway I just like the science of trying to answer this question I, I don't know that I'll uh, employ any of its practices though yes, our listeners you will. might Emily what's your chatter <laughs> I read two books while I was on my lovely vacation and one of them I'm still thinking about so much it's Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie it's a book from last year that I think was a National Book Award nominee I can't remember but it's about the experience of being a Nigerian who immigrates to the United States and then goes back to Nigeria um, Catherine Schultz wrote a really great review in New York Magazine she is such a good reviewer about the idea that it's a global novel as opposed to the usual immigration narrative that's all about adjustment to the US the main character in this book goes home and it has its flaws this book like every great novel but I just felt like there was so much to think about in it I really recommend it all right my chatter is about the death of Jeremiah Denton. Jeremiah Denton died at 89 this week. He was briefly a senator from Alabama, a Republican senator. But he was famous as one of the prisoners of war in Vietnam. And there's an incredible story about him where he had been tortured in the mid-1960s after having been shot down as a flyer, not unlike John McCain. He was tortured by the North Vietnamese who were holding him hostage, and they brought him out to make a propaganda film for them. And he you know, spoke – but as he spoke, he blinked. He was blinking in Morris code. And what he was blinking was the words torture. And he just kept blinking. And it's this amazing, if you watch the film, it's unbelievable, just the bravery of the guy and the cleverness of it. But I start to read about there's a group of the sort of hardest core prisoners in Vietnam. And they were, have had remarkable lives because of the sort of 11 
who were in what's called Alcatraz in North Vietnam, there was Denton, who became a he became a kind of crazy conservative politician. There was James Stockdale, who was Ross Perot's nominee for vice president in 1992, and sort of ill-fated. But Stockdale is one of the most interesting, like thoughtful incredibly incisive, also ultra-conservative guys in recent American history and tremendously heroic as a leader in the North Vietnamese uh, prison camps. There was Sam Johnson, who is still in the House. He's a Texas conservative, another ultra-right-wing politician who came out of that camp and had been, again, unbelievably brave. There's McCain, who wasn't part of the 11, but is another person who sort of survived this terrible torture. And there was a failed guy, a guy who ran and lost for Congress in Oklahoma, as again, as a very, very conservative Republican. But it's just, you know, of a very small group, there's a huge number of successful political careers in it. And they just what they went through was unbelievable. So Denton is at once, you know, the life he led after he was in POW is not one, you know, what he represented, his ideals are not ones that I share, but his bravery can't be gainsaid. And it's tremendously interesting life. So look up Jeremiah Denton. All right, let's do the credits. Emily's got to catch a plane, so it's just going to be regular credits. <laughs> wow. You'll find links to what we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash GabFest, fest, fest, fest. Follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. It's filled with lively conversation and me apologizing for very stupid things I've done. You can subscribe to the Political GabFest in iTunes. Uh, you search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. Leave a comment and a rating while you're there. It really helps other people discover the show. Our producer is Mike Vuolo. Our intern is Rebecca Cohen, who just wrote a very funny piece about the disappearance of the question mark. It's a really good piece. It's gone, Rebecca? That's bad news. The question mark is gone. And the exclamation point has totally won the day. Yes. Completely. Oi. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. He is on vacation. He just emailed me. I don't know if he emailed you guys a picture of himself at a panda reserve in China somewhere. He's in China. It was him with a panda, so he is dead to me. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will be back with you next week and come to our show in Austin, slate.com slash Austin. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.